This next section is called a meditation instruction. Attention to the finer details of the sitting posture has never been a prominent feature of the Theravada meditation tradition. Very few forest monks sit in full lotus with each foot upturned on the opposite thigh or fold their hands in a perfect mudra. The basic instructions are simply to establish a posture that is stable and erect, with the main criterion being that the posture be one in which the meditator can sit for a reasonably long time the minimum of unnecessary discomfort. Lumpur treated posture as a straightforward matter. At the beginning of a meditation session, he would simply give instructions to take the cross-legged posture, place the right leg on the left, the right hand on the left, keep the back straight, make oneself comfortable, not too tense and not too relaxed, and close the eyes. Having paid homage to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, meditators either turned to their main meditation object or began with a preliminary practice. Lumpur sometimes suggested going through the 32 parts of the body before turning to the breath. Just as I was mentioning yesterday, you can do the uh, dismantling the body practice also, those kind of things. Apart from being a good mindfulness practice in itself, this reinforced skillful perceptions of the body that could then be taken up for deeper investigation than the mind had been strengthened by samadhi. Lumpur also taught less experienced meditators to follow the breath in and out of the body for a certain period before focusing on one particular point, such as the tip of the nose. So then follows a fairly extensive um, description of meditation advice uh, from Lumpur Chao. Focus your mindfulness so that it follows the breath entering your body and leaving it. Follow the beginning of the breath, the middle of the breath, the end of the breath. With mindfulness, keep the breath in mind. And with alertness, be aware that right now you are breathing. On the inhalation, the beginning of the breath is at the nose tip, the middle at the heart and the end at the abdomen. On the exhalation, the beginning of the breath lies at the abdomen, the middle at the heart and the end at the tip of the nose. Focus on these three points. The mind, your awareness, has no time to sneak off and take hold of other objects because it's preoccupied with being aware, right here, of both the inhalation and the exhalation. If the mind goes off in search of other objects, it shows that mindfulness has slipped. Establish it again. Be aware of exactly where the breath is passing at each moment. Keep looking. Sometimes your mind runs off for a long time without you being aware of it. Suddenly you realize that mindfulness has been lost again. Start afresh. If you practice in this way, then you'll develop a good working knowledge of the beginning, middle and end of the breath. After you've trained in this way for a, for a sufficient time, mindfulness will be constantly present on the inhalation and the exhalation. There will be mindfulness at the beginning of the breath, its middle and end. Initially, you'll have a few difficulties, but later, as you become more experienced, it will no longer be necessary to follow the breath in and out. Now anchor your awareness at the tip of your nose. Stop right there and note whether the breath is long or short. Be aware of the inhalation and the exhalation at that point. When you first start to practice sitting meditation, Give this method a try. When you're concentrating on the breath, there's no need to force it. It's similar to learning how to use a pedal sewing machine. To sew properly, you need to find a rhythm between your hand and foot. So when you're first learning to use a sewing machine, what do you do? You practice pedaling freely without sewing anything. Once you can pedal fluently, then you start on some cloth. Again, that's a bit more of a, an example relevant to uh, living in a forest monastery. Uh, have we got any pedal sewing machines here, or are they all electric these days? We have one, but it's um, not really used. <laughs> so, kind of museum piece. So, so, so back in the old days, before electric sewing machines, then the uh, the treadle sewing machine was the um, and coordinating the, uh, the the rhythm of the foot was the was a, a particular skill that was needed.
Your breath is the same. There's no need to make it a certain way. It doesn't matter whether it's long or short, provided that it feels comfortable. If the breath is too long or too short or too strong, don't force it. Allow it to find its own balance. All you have to do is focus on the inhalation and the exhalation. You don't have to contemplate anything else. It's enough to be aware of the breath. When you do this, certain thoughts will arise. What's the use of this? And so on. Keep going. Don't get caught in doubts. There's no need to answer them. No need to think. It's not your job. Your job is simply to be aware of the breath as it enters and leaves the body. You don't want to see deities or Brahma gods, but you want to see the breath. It is sufficient merely that you don't forget the breath. Understand, and then cut off the various objects that pass in and out of awareness, and let them go. Thoughts and moods are changeful. Perhaps when you start sitting you begin to feel homesick, and the mind starts proliferating about this matter or that. The moment you start thinking of home, then remind yourself, it's changeful, my nair, it's uncertain. Fond thoughts of home are impermanent, and so are negative ones. You can't believe any of it. Your mind lies to you. You have to assert this changeful nature of things. Sometimes you hate this person and that, but it doesn't last. Sometimes you love this person and that, but it doesn't last either. Pin the mind down right there, and where can it go? When you hate someone, you fabricate a certain image of them. When you love someone, you do the same. The mind starts to suffer. Sometimes you may detest someone so much that whenever you think of them, tears of fury start to flow. Do you see what I mean? How could that be real and lasting? See mental states as merely mental states. All of them are impermanent. We have to cut things off because they'll delude us if we don't. We perceive something as good and we remind ourselves that the good is changeful. Something else is experienced as bad and that is changeful too. Don't let your mind grasp onto the good, don't let it grasp onto the bad. If you have the measure of mental states in this way, then they lose their significance. Just keep working away at it. The states that arise, good or bad, have no intrinsic value and they will gradually fade away. If you follow them and keep an eye on them, you're bound to see this truth of changefulness. Your initial practice has to be like this. Be mindful. Subsequently, you will see the breath, mindfulness and the mind simultaneously at one point. The word see here doesn't refer to ordinary vision. It's a seeing with awareness by the internal, not the external eye. The awareness of the breath is here, mindfulness is here, the sense of knowing, the mind, is here. They converge in one harmonious whole. When we see that harmony, the mind will detach from sensual desires, karma chanda, ill will, viapada, sloth and torpor, tinamita, worry and agitation, udacha kugucha, and indecision, vichikicha. These five hindrances will be gone completely. All that you will see is the breath. There will be just mindfulness and the mind in one point. With the absence of the five hindrances, you can take it that the mind has entered samadhi. You must know the breath when it's coarse and when it's fine. And you have to know it right there. After that, you must focus on the breath to make it more and more subtle and fine until its coarseness has disappeared. The refinement of the breath is such that as you sit and contemplate the breath, it becomes so subtle that there's almost no breath, or so it seems. Don't be alarmed. The breath is still there. It's just that it's extremely subtle. So, what do you do then? You must use your mindfulness to make the absence of breath your meditation object. At this point, some people may become alarmed, afraid that their breathing will stop and that it's dangerous. You must reassure yourself that it's quite safe and there's no danger. All that is necessary is that you maintain mindfulness, the awareness, the knowing. The mind is now in a very subtle state. At this level, 
doesn't have to be controlled. You don't have to do anything. All that is needed is to maintain mindfulness and alertness. You should be aware that at that moment the mind is acting automatically. It's not necessary to adjust its quality. Now, simply maintain a steady mindfulness and alertness. The mind has fully entered the state of lucid calm. Sometimes the mind will enter and leave this state at short intervals. Sometimes when it's withdrawn, it will become lucidly calm again for a short time. Then it will emerge once more and become aware of sense objects. The mind, having withdrawn from samadhi, comprehends the nature of various things that arise in awareness. There will be a rapture in the Dhamma. Wisdom will arise. Many kinds of knowledge will arise at this point. The mind, at this moment, will have entered the stage of vipassana. You must firmly establish mindfulness, concentration and alertness. When wisdom arises, the mind is in vipassana, which is a continuation of samatha. So vipassana means insight or looking inwardly. Samatha is concentration or tranquility. This is called the process of the mind. You must attain mastery, vasi, in entering and leaving states of tranquility. When you've done so, then you will know the nature of the states of mind and the nature of the mind that withdraws. You must be astute in entering and leaving samadhi, establishing a strong degree of mindfulness and alertness at these points. Here the mind has come to an end of turmoil. Whether it's moving forwards or back, all the states of mind lie within the lucid calm. On reaching the appropriate time for the meditation to end, review what you did before you entered samadhi. How did you establish your mind so as to be so peaceful? Then, the next time you sit, you must consider the first thing to do. Recall how you focused your mind when you withdrew from samadhi. You must know this. Although you've ended your sitting meditation, you should not look at it as an end to samadhi. You should be determined to continue being aware and focused and mindful. Whether standing, walking, sitting or lying down, you must be constantly mindful. So there's many, many uh, elements in that uh, uh, short teaching and uh, different aspects of, of um, uh, meditation. Uh, one of the things that uh, is very um, say, uh, consistent in Lumpur Cha's teachings is that he didn't make a huge um, division between samatha and vipassana or concentration and insight. And uh, during the, the um, early years of Lumpur's teaching in the 50s and 60s, there tended to be in Thailand sort of monasteries that were vipassana monasteries or monasteries that were satipatthana monasteries or monasteries that were were uh, vipassana monasteries, and they would tend to focus on a particular method or a particular aspect of, of the teaching, and then tend to be sort of in competition or critical of the other places. And um, so there would be this, this sort of factioning going on, and uh, and so you'd have people saying, "Do you practice? Do you practice uh, concentration, or do you practice satipatthana, or you know, do you practice uh, uh, vipassana, or do you practice?" Uh, uh, concentration, and uh, the, and there's a sort of you know, which which camp do you belong to? Which group uh, is your group? And so Lumpucha tended to to steer away from all of that and rather take his his guide both from his own watching his own mind, working with his own mind, but also how in the suttas there's a, a very natural and easy connection between concentration uh, and insight, and as he describes it here, just the uh, the mind having a, a arrived at a particular quality of calmness and lucidity, then uh, it, it's natural at that point uh, to uh, say not to doing anything, but to the mind being uh, aware and attentive in the the present moment. And so, as you said, various things will arise in awareness. So that the uh, uh, the the way that the Buddha spoke about it in the suttas very often was simply to say that when the mind is uh, is concentrated and when there is uh, samadhi, then there's no need to think uh, may knowledge and vision of the way things are uh, arise because it's natural for the mind that is concentrated uh, within that for knowledge and vision of the way things are to arise or for insight to arise. So that uh, is uh, what is expressed here, that sense of a natural continuity between um, 
concentration and insight and an and easy sort of um, transition between the, those two aspects is very very characteristic of Nupu Cha's approach. Also, um, at this then that last paragraph where he's talking about when you're reaching the end for the end of the meditation period, then uh, to review what you did before you entered samadhi. So that this quality of reviewing is also really uh, Im- uh, important in terms of developing the, the practice. The the Pali for that is vimangsa, and uh, this is the the fourth of the uh, the collection of qualities the Buddha called the four bases of success or the four idipadas. So that the um, uh, if in order to, to succeed at anything, whether it's um, practicing meditation or cooking a meal or building a kuti or robbing a bank, whatever it might be, wholesome or, hun- or unwholesome or neutral, uh, there are four particular qualities that are needed. The, there needs to be interest, chanda, or, or the sort of, uh, the uh, the quality of desire, the sense of, of engagement in that task. You have to be interested to, to train your mind. Uh, the second one is virya, or energy. You have to apply the uh, uh, so you have to apply energy or effort in order to carry out that that training. And the third, and the, the, these first three all work together, is chitta, which in this respect means thinking things through. Okay, you want to train your mind, you want to be concentrated, you want to be peaceful. So, how are you going to go about doing that? So, thinking things through, uh, understanding the method, or if you're wanting to cook a meal, you look and see what ingredients there are in the, the larder, or you think through a, a plan of what dishes you want to cook. And so on. So those first three all work together: interest, energy, and and um, consideration. And then the fourth one, vimangsa, is after having uh, followed that followed that through, having engaged in that particular activity. So in this respect, um, having had a period of meditation, then the, the vimangsa is reviewing. Okay, how did it work? Uh, did did the mind focus? Did it? Uh, reach a quality of concentration was there a quality of wisdom arising or, or not uh, how did that work and if if there was uh, lucidity and calm um, how uh, what were the conditions that helped bring that about what what uh, helped to support that so uh, in terms of learning some useful lists and this is one of those uh, which is only short only four elements in it that's uh, handy to to recollect so chanda virya chitta vimangsa the four bases of success, and particularly that uh, reviewing, because oftentimes we engage in some particular activity or practice, or we, we pick up a particular method, and we we get so busy with sort of doing the method and obeying the instructions that we don't take a, a look back and think, well, did it work? Did I arrive at the place I planned to get to? Did the food get cooked? Did the what? What was the result of the the meditation? You know, I was. Following the method as I as I thought, um, but what was the effect of that? So that aspect of vimangsa is really crucial in the sense of uh, the uh, feedback or, or seeing um, uh, guiding your choices in the future and uh, to learn from what what's happened uh, in the from the the way you made effort in the past. And then that last sentence uh, is also. Um, quite crucial, as he says, uh, you should be determined to continue being aware and focused and mindful. Whether standing, walking, sitting or lying down, you must be constantly mindful. So uh, again, this quality of continuity was something that, that Lumpur would, would emphasize, that not just seeing uh, the practice as sitting with your eyes closed in the meditation hall or doing walking meditation, but rather seeing that the we... Uh, we have different modes of practice. So I tend to use the language of formal meditation and informal meditation, formal and informal, rather than um, thinking of you know, sitting with sitting in the temple with, your eye, with our eyes closed is equal to the practice. And then sitting here listening to a Dhamma reading is not the practice because the, the fundamental reality of all things is still exactly the same. The Dhamma is, is how could the Dhamma not be here and now? <laughs> How could the reality of, of of all things be different here in the sala than it is in the temple? You know, the, the mind, the body are still the same. The, the Dhamma is still the same. So that uh, 
the, this little comment that Lumpur makes here, it gets extended in various different ways through many of his teachings, but that sense of, of continuity and seeing that, um, uh, as he would say in, in his characteristically succinct way, you can suffer in every posture, so you can also awaken in, it, in every posture. You don't have to be uh, just uh, doing walking meditation or sitting with your eyes closed in order to, to suffer uh, or to end suffering. So similarly, uh, if we are using the, developing the meditation in a, in a holistic or a, com- more, a, a more complete way, then when the end of the sitting comes and you open your eyes, rather than thinking, okay, the practice is now finished, to instead see it quite consciously as just changing the mode of practice. So the next section is called an aside. The meditation instruction in the previous section is long and detailed. It includes a number of technical terms and references to some advanced levels of practice and subtle states of mind. However, it should be borne in mind that this instruction was not intended by Lumpur to be a definitive account of the meditation process. The text is a transcription of one particular instruction given on one particular day to one particular group of monastics. Lumpur did not write a meditation manual, and he rarely spoke about more advanced levels of practice in public. For this reason, some of his views on meditation practice will always remain obscure, and this is also true about about his advice on more basic matters. In the paragraph above, dealing with the choice of a meditation technique, the statement is made that the meditators should stick with the practice, quote, for a reasonable period of time, unquote, before deciding to change it. But how long is a reasonable, sorry, but how long is a, quote, reasonable, unquote, time? Certainly a reasonable question. (laughs) Sajjan Jayasara is characteristically clever with language, certainly a reasonable question, but not, unfortunately, one that can be answered with words from Longpo's mouth. A period of time measured in weeks or months, rather than hours or minutes, would be the answer that he would probably, but did not actually, give. So, a reasonable length of time, Ajahn Jayasara is saying, is probably weeks or months that you use a particular practice rather than hours or minutes. Accurately conveying Lumpur's meditation teachings is thus somewhat hampered by the unevenness of the body of recorded evidence. Some topics are well covered, others not so well at all. Complications are also caused by the fact that the material that is available is transcribed from instructions given ad hoc and which are reflective of time, place and audience. Paul's response to questions about the importance of the cultivation of jhana, absorption, for example, varied according to the character and accumulated foundational virtues of the questioner. In other words, if he saw meditators had a well-developed capacity for jhana, he would encourage it, and it would appear that he considered this the superior path. But if he saw meditators had only a weak capacity, or were getting caught up in the trap of craving for jhana, he might de-emphasize it. If he saw the meditators possessed strong powers of analysis, he might encourage them to make use of those powers when the mind had gone beyond the hindrances, without waiting for the stabilization of mind provided by jhana. In this, his teaching paralleled that of his great contemporary, Lungta Mahabur, who coined the phrase, Banya cultivating samadhi, or uh, wisdom develops samadhi. So that was a, a talk that was translated into English um, back in the early 60s, Wisdom Develops Samadhi, and that's um, one of the, I think, the very, very first teachings of uh, Lungta Mahabur translated into English. And uh, it's um, it's a, a real classic of the forest tradition, and even to the extent that uh, Thomas Merton, the Christian contemplative, uh, called it a spiritual masterpiece. So... Uh, and we, there are copies in the library and many editions in the, that have been produced over the years. 
Another problem is encountered in translating the transcribed records of Lumpur's meditation teachings, and it springs from the nature of the Thai language. Thai lends itself much more to flexible ambiguity than to scientific precision. For example, it insists much less on the use of third-person pronouns than is the case in English. Questions of who or what are acting upon whom or what can be hard to determine with any great degree of certainty. So often in, in the use of Thai, they don't say I or he or she or we or you or they. They just, they just you, you use the verb and then the pronouns are just sort of implied by the, the conversation or the content. So as he says, questions of who or what are acting upon whom or what can be hard to determine with any great degree of certainty. In matters dealing with the physical world, context often comes to the translator's rescue. In matters dealing with the more profound functions of the mind, the translator is rarely so fortunate. One last layer of difficulty is furnished by the occasionally idiosyncratic manner in which Lumpur and his contemporaries in the Isan forest tradition use Pali technical terms. For readers coming from a more academic Theravada background, this can be a source of frustration. Indeed. <laughs> For a translator, it may involve being faced with passages in which the meaning ascribed to a term by the teacher does not correspond exactly to the definition in a Pali English dictionary. One way to look at this discrepancy is by means of an analogy. If the suttas may be compared with the photograph of the nature of things, then the teachings of the great masters would be like paintings. In their attempt to bring out their sense of what is before them, painters sometimes slightly manipulate forms or use colours not recognised by the camera. Their intention is to transmit the truth of their experience to the best of their abilities. Similarly, great forest masters of Isan have on occasion put fidelity to the Dhamma that they have realized above a strict fidelity to the texts. That's a very diplomatic way of putting it. <laughs> but I think it's a good analogy that you have. So you have, um, I think it was a Matisse painting the green stripe. There's a, a, portrait, there's a, a portrait of somebody's face. It's got a, a huge kind of green stripe down the middle of it. And you can be pretty sure that the person he was painting did not have a <laughs> uh, didn't, was not did not have a green nose or a green forehead. But what Matisse, I think it was Matisse, what what he saw and what was represented in the painting sort of came across with this great green block in the middle. So that um, this uh, uh, idiosyncratic, the sort of the unique usage of terms, is very very common in the forest tradition. I've, uh, when I was living at uh, Abhayagiri, uh, a group of Thai students of Lumpotun, uh, they purchased the land next door, and so Lumpotun would come and lead retreats there quite regularly. <coughs> and so um, if he was there and teaching, then uh, myself and uh, Ajahn Pasna and other members of the community from Abhayagiri would go over and listen to Lumpotun's Dhamma talks. And... Uh, uh, I remember on one occasion he spoke for about an hour about the importance of not mistaking jnana dasna for dasna jnana. So jnana dasna means, um, or yatabhutang jnana dasna, is like knowledge and vision of the way things are. Uh, jnana dasna means knowledge and vision. And he was really, really insistent that knowledge and vision is not the same as vision and knowledge. And it is a really bad mistake to make. And he literally talked for about an hour on this theme. And I kept sort of looking over to Ajahn Pasna like, are you getting this? <laughs> <laughs> but he was really sort of ardent, you know, don't make this mistake, this is a really, this is really foolish, this is really, really stupid, this is really wrong. Dasna jnana is not the same as jnana dasna. And you could see that the people who were regular students of Lumpur too, and it's like, yeah, yeah, right, tell them like it is, Lumpur, <laughs> you know, that's, yeah, that's, just, that's absolutely right, yeah, you know, just, yeah, you've really nailed it. Because they'd heard him speak about it many, many times, and they knew that was what that theme was and, and why it made such a difference. But for people who are new to it, it was like, I never even heard of Dasna and Jnana. Um, so, and what's the difference? But for around him, it was like obviously a very regular theme. And so 
um, that was meaningful and useful to the, the, the his more regular students. So often, when you are uh, listening to the the teachings of the, the forest tradition teachers, you have to so listen carefully and pay attention to the the way that um, someone is using a, a certain term. So, like for example, a very good example is the way that Lumpur Sumato uses the word consciousness. So. Usually in the Pali, consciousness um, is the is the English word used to translate vinyana, which means a discriminative consciousness or separative consciousness. It's one of the the five khandas. It's the the, the fifth of the five khandas. The way Lumpur Sumedho talks about consciousness and the way he uses the word is very much as a uh, sort of transcendent awareness. And but he's pretty much the only person who uses the word consciousness like that in the, in English Dhamma talks, at least within the general Theravada Buddhist field. So uh, when people come and listen to, to Lumpur Sumedho's teachings or they read in his books and they say, well, hang on a minute, that's is he talking about vinyana or what's he talking about? How does how does that work? And and so it's but it's a, a way that he's uh, he's talked for thirty years or so and that particular uh, say Shades of meaning that are carried by that that word they they are um, particularly they relevant to him and and he's developed a way of describing things that uses that word in that particular way so that you have to in a sense be very alert to who you're listening to and how they use those those uh, those terms and if something clashes with what you uh, what you how you understand it then rather than assuming well they're wrong. <laughs> Because it doesn't match with your own experience or your own definitions, it's much more helpful to, to consider it in terms of well, okay, I haven't heard it that way before, or uh, what does he mean when he uses that, or oh, that, it's interesting that um, this person is they they're talking, um, they're, they're focusing so much on on emotion or on on um, on um, say concentration or on say or consciousness or what you know whatever particular theme. So it's helpful to to be, uh, as, as, as Ajahn Jayasari describes here, be attentive to the context. You know, who they, who's the person talking to? Who is doing the talking? What what's their usual mode of of, uh, of description and uh, acting? So to summarize, the meditation teachings of Lung, uh, of Lumpur represented in this chapter contain many gems and useful reflections. But for the reasons given above, they do not coalesce into a complete system. If Lumpur were alive today and speaking to a student of his teachings, he would perhaps give the following advice. Attention to detail is good. Precision and clarity are good. But always be willing to tolerate a certain element of incompleteness and ambiguity. Follow that? So, like, uh, like in Walt Whitman's in Walt Whitman's poem, "A Song of Myself," he said, that, "Do I contradict myself? Very well. Then I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. So that uh, <clears throat> that's the way we all are. Really, we all contain um, contradictions <laughs> and things that are, are ambiguous or have a mixture of meanings, and so that." Uh, uh, even though part of us likes to have precision and say, well, I want to know what to do, what's the right thing, what's the wrong thing. Just give me the instructions, tell me what to do, and I'll do it. But it's wise to be aware that sabe sankara, uh, <coughs> dukkha, all conditioned things are unsatisfactory. You can't get a system that is perfect and applicable all the time. It's just not the way nature works. All conditioned things are unsatisfactory. Sabe sankara anicca, all conditioned things are uncertain, unstable. Sabe dhamma anatta, all dhammas are not self. So that no matter how much we would like to have a perfect, uh, predictable, nailed down system, then uh, it's it's never going to be possible. If someone said, if someone tells you they, that they have got the perfect system that's completely flawless and reliable, then you should get very suspicious. <laughs> I think, well, thank you. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> I appreciate your confidence that, uh, that there is um, 
that's uh, that's something that we listen to and receive, but we don't. We also can have that uh, a way of holding it with a, a a sense of caution and recognizing well that maybe not the whole picture, or there's uh, that's probably not uh, everything that there, there is to to understand or to say about that particular practice. So before going on to the next section, any questions? Thoughts? Reflections? Yes? Ajahn, with the last sentences that you mentioned, it seems we generally, people have this tendency to try to say, we really want to let them know so do we actually like stress enough like how it's not like that and how we can get lost by trying and holding on to something as this is true this system is true this religion is true this whatever we seem to if I look at me it's like constant uh, attempt to hold on to things like that <laughs> well, I think you just answered your own, your own question in some ways. The, uh, uh, I mean, it's a very central part of the teaching. Sabe sankara inicha. All conditioned things are uncertain. They're unstable. Or, you know, all sankaras are unsatisfactory. So, any kind of form, any kind of opinion, any kind of description, it's necessarily incomplete. And again, Lumpur Cha was, was was a genius at expressing these kind of things very simply and. <laughs> that, you know, if you're looking for completeness in that which is incomplete, you're bound to be disappointed. If you look for security in that which is insecure, you're bound to be disappointed. So if you just take this, the core principle like that, that then you can recognize that, that longing for certainty or that longing for precision and recognize, well, that, that's understandable as a feeling, but if you try to to look for certainty in that which is uncertain, you have to be disappointed. Maybe, and if I may, maybe the uh, more direct question, personal question, mm-hmm. is, uh, or at least this is what I contemplate often, is uh, like what in the realm of convention and really action, everyday action, every moment, like what's the relationship we should approach to this well, fact or something? Because like I could be like to whatever arises like being very flexible with this meeting these views but sometimes I'm kind of like oh do it like this because we do it like that or because it's like this so do I kind of like just keep it inside of me and just like follow or do I no it's not like that or knowing okay if it whatever you are right as well but I am right as well, although it's the opposite opinions. And then this is the part that I find, especially, for example, in our practice, which is pretty, uh, how to say, pretty, I don't want to say strict, because that's relative mm-hmm. as well. But there is like that. We do it like this. Well, the, the definition uh, it comes in the Vinaya and the. the so precision of of how we live and the, the, how you wear your your robes or following the routine and the who's got what duties and how you carry out those duties and how you put your shoes on the rack and so forth that uh, all there's a lot of of detail in in uh, that precision so that then it's uh, so in that sort of precision of action and speech and so that that um that aspect of conduct is is very detailed and specific. So you, you the, in terms of living together, that's a common standard of practice, a common standard of behavior, and uh, and uh, a common respect for for standards. That's what enables us to live harmoniously together. But it's uh, as a, in a way as a counterpart to that, then. Um, then internally there needs to be, uh, in terms of, if you like, in terms of view, uh, the sense of, of, uh, 
of openness and recognizing well what I think or uh, what I see as an opinion that can only be a relative truth this is this mind's particular thought or concept um, so that they uh, they uh, say that you, uh, one of the expressions you have in the Buddhist teachings is to have conduct as as uh, as as fine as the as the finest flower, but your your view of things as wide as the sky. So that you have like a, a, a in terms of uh, say views and opinions, a, a great openness internally, recognizing that someone else's opinion or someone else's point of view is, is uh, that's their business. If you like, they, they see things in different ways, but where um, that <clears throat> where we can say uh, get lost is where we we, we then uh, say take that that openness or that broadness in terms of our conduct like so I can whatever I feel like saying I can just say whatever I feel like doing I'll just do so that we uh, we we get those mixed up and so that you know the the Buddha spoke uh, in terms of Dhamma and Vinaya and uh, as uh, uh, Lumpur Cha again with great genius put it together he said uh, he said Sumedho you must be really confused and, uh, the, and he, he uh, wasn't Lumpur Sumedho at that time was a very young monk didn't quite know what was coming he said well, wh why would I why, why should I be confused Lumpur he said well the, the Vinaya is all about holding on and the Dhamma is all about letting go so that's confusing, right? And he said, "Yeah, actually, that's right. <laughs> that's confusing." And so then, and, they, and he thought that uh, Lumpur was going to sort of launch into a profound explanation. But what he, all he said was, "Well, when you when you get the two of those figured out, you'll be fine." <laughs> so that that uh, so, and I think that's a very succinct way of of, of speaking about it in terms of vinaya, of like what you do, what you don't do. It's about yes, you 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 hang on, you 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 act in this way, you don't act in that way, and then in terms of dhamma, it's all about letting go, and so that it's a uh, it's a way that the in a sense the, the middle way, and the training is learning how dhamma and vinaya the or as in in the qualities of the Buddha vijja and charana the uh, the quality of of uh, awareness and knowing and an action charana so vijja is awareness or, or or knowing understanding charana is conduct vijja charana sampano so that was one of the qualities of the buddha so that the dhamma side is the vijja aspect and the vinaya is the charana is the conduct and the, in a sense you 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 have to uh, by it's only only through living it can you find how they work together, and if you if you uh, tilt too far in one direction, too much dhamma, not enough vinaya, then you you end up clashing with people or getting spaced out. Too much vinaya, not enough dhamma, then you end up being anxious and fussy and and uh, critical. So that it's uh, finding how the two work together. As Lumpur Chow said to, to the young Ajahn Sumedho, you know, when you when you figure out how those work together, you'll be fine. No, oh. <laughs> but it's rather like riding a bicycle. You know, you can only do it by getting on the bike and 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 doing it. You you can't learn how to ride a bicycle by reading a book or or by not being on a bike. You have to. It's, a, it's like a full body learning. It's a whole being learning. Or like swimming, you can't learn to swim without getting wet. You've got to get in the water learn how to swim so that in in terms of the the internal and the external having the the conduct as refined as fine flour and the, the view as broad as the sky having the dhamma and vinaya balancing each other it's only through living in this way and and, and then getting a sense for how they work together and seeing where we we get it wrong where things out, get out of whack with each other they, we tilt. We get too uh, too fussy and particular about the details, so that then the respect for the vineyard becomes a, a source of constant anxiety and suffering, or complaining, criticizing, blaming other people because they're they're not good enough or they're doing things wrong. 
uh, <coughs> so we're holding that too tightly and we're not giving enough emphasis to to dhamma and the other as the other side of it is where you there's too much uh, emphasis on the uh, uh, on the openness <laughs> and our conduct becomes really sloppy and we end up you know, clashing with other people or annoying other people or or being disrespectful of the the standards and and uh, uh, say or or unconscious of looking after our own body and our own health or our our, our living place that we 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 attach to the idea of letting go or non-attachment in the in a in an unskillful way. Okay, so let's. Uh, there's a little bit more about walking meditation here. So this is uh, the section is called "Not Just Sitting." Many Wat Bapong monastics practiced walking meditation as much, or uh, sorry, many Wat Bapong monastics practiced walking meditation as much as or more than sitting meditation. The Buddha listed its benefits as producing a strong constitution good digestion, physical endurance, and a readiness to strive. More importantly, he said that the samadhi arising during walking meditation is more easily sustained outside formal practice sessions than that developed while sitting. So if you want to look up the reference, that's in the Anguttara Nikaya, the Book of the Fives, Sutta number 29. It's a very short sutta. Basically, it just says exactly that. But those are the five benefits of walking meditation. <clears throat> from the Book of the Fives. Walking meditation provides both an alternative and a complement to sitting meditation. It is a good substitute for sitting meditation when physical ailments make sitting impractical or when hindrances that arise strongly during sitting are more manageable or absent while walking. Walking tends to be the best choice following a meal, for example, when mental dullness is likely to make sitting meditation difficult. Walking complements sitting by requiring cultivation of mindfulness in movement rather than stillness. Although the meditator walks with eyes downcast, the consciousness of forms and sounds together with the rhythm of walking prevents the meditator from becoming detached from the world of the senses in the same way that it is possible during sitting meditation. As a result, it is often more difficult to pacify the mind while walking. But, once the mind has become calm, the experience of varying sense data, combined with the regular physical movements of the posture, is conducive to the development of wisdom. The thoughts that arise from the calmness become Dhamma-vichaya, the investigation of Dhamma. In Thai forest monasteries like Wat Bapong, every kuti has its own walking path, usually from 20 to 30 paces long. Lumpur recommended walking at a more or less normal pace in order to develop a habit of awareness easily integrated into daily life. Hands were to be clasped in front of the abdomen, never behind the back, a style more suited to that of a general inspecting the troops than a monk, Lumpur said, and, uh, and most definitely not hanging loosely by one's sides. In addition to being perceived to be unsightly, walking without clasping the hands together was considered too relaxed to promote inner restraint. Walking in such a way was too similar to leisurely strolling to be appropriate for meditation. Lumpur instructed that before beginning the session, meditators should stand and pay homage to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha in the manner they saw fit and clarify their intention for the following session. Then, they should begin to walk back and forth along the path, maintaining a constant mindfulness and alertness as they walked. One method by which this was to be achieved, Lumpur would advise, was through the use of the mantra Buddho, mentally reciting Bud as the right foot touches the ground and To as the left foot touches. This was the basic means of stilling the mind. And Lumpur uh, Chara is speaking here. Maintain a continuous awareness on the object. If your mind becomes agitated or you get weary, then stop and still the mind. Ease it by focusing on the breath. When the mind has become sufficiently calm, then resume the walking meditation. Keep a constant alertness. Establish awareness at the beginning of the path. Be aware of it all. The beginning of the path, the middle of the path, the end of the path. 
Keep the awareness unbroken while you're walking. Sometimes a feeling of panic or fear may arise. Go against it. It's changeful. Courage arises, and that doesn't last either. It's all changeable. There's nothing to grasp onto. This gives rise to wisdom. Bringing forth wisdom doesn't refer to a knowledge based on memory. It means knowing the mind that thinks and perceives. All thoughts and perceptions arise in our minds. Good or bad, right or wrong, just acknowledge their presence. Don't give them any undue significance. Suffering is just suffering. Happiness is just happiness. It's all a fraud. Hold your ground. Don't go chasing after them. Don't chase after happiness and don't chase after suffering. Know them. Know them and then put them down. Wisdom will arise. Keep going against the stream of the mind. When you feel sufficiently tired, then stop and come off the walking path, but be careful to maintain the continuity of mindfulness. Standing, walking, sitting or lying down, maintain a constant awareness. Whether you're walking to the village on arms round, walking through the village receiving food, eating the food or whatever, be mindful at all times in every posture. Lumpur recommended that meditators not follow their first thought to end a walking meditation session. He said that after deciding to leave their walking path, they should continue walking for at least a few more minutes. Sometimes the feeling that it was time to change posture would pass away by itself and the meditation could be extended. If not, and it was indeed a good time to stop, then a wise habit of not reacting immediately to the impulses of a mind that might well be tainted by defilement had been strengthened. Lumpur taught that effort had to be sustained from the first moment of consciousness in the early morning until the last moment before sleep, in every posture. Again, uh, Lumpur is speaking here. When you lie down, then lie on your right side with the left foot resting on the right. Concentrate on buddho, buddho, until you fall asleep. This is what is called lying down with mindfulness. It's also called the lion's posture. Lion as in a large cat with teeth and a mane. So I'm not quite sure why it's called the lion's posture, but uh, lying down on the right side. So when you see uh, the reclining Buddha, the Buddha's always lying down on, on his right side. And if you look at the, uh, <coughs> the photograph next to the, the rupa, the image of, of Lumpucha in the temple, there's a, a, a photograph of him, a black and white photograph of him, demonstrating the lion's posture uh, on the rocks at the Thamsang Pet Monastery. I'm not sure why they had a picture of him or photo session of him lying down there, but uh, they have, eventually they built a huge reclining Buddha up there, so maybe he was modeling the, the, the reclining Buddha, but uh, it's there out on the rocks in the, in uh, Thamsang Pet is where that photograph was taken. On one occasion, he maintained that an adept practitioner could remember whether he fell asleep on the inhalation or exhalation. Whether meditating while walking, sitting, standing or lying down, the daily practice was to re-establish balance as soon as it was lost. Meditators were to be patient and persevering, allowing the mind to become discouraged or irritated when it refused to stay on its object would only compound the problem. Taming the mind was like taming a wild animal. If you don't give up, then sooner or later the animal was sure to. Sorry. Taming the mind was like taming a wild animal. If you didn't give up, then sooner or later the animal was sure to. In another of his favorite animal similes, he compared the practice to herding a water buffalo. Your mind is like a water buffalo. Mental states are like rice plants. The knowing is like the owner. What do you do when you graze a buffalo? You let it go its way, but you keep an eye on it. If it goes close to the rice plants, then you yell at it. When the buffalo hears you, it moves away. But you can't afford to let your attention wander. If it's stubborn and won't obey you, then you have to get a stick and give it a thrashing. So again, most of us didn't grow up looking after water buffaloes and rice paddies. Probably none of us. So, so that was a very common thing as a child. You'd be sent out to, to go and 
takes the uh, water buffaloes to graze. So the, uh, they could uh, quite legally and properly um, uh, eat the, the, the grass and the plants at the edges of the rice paddies, but the, the rice plants themselves, that's providing the food for the, for the people for the year, so then the, the water buffalo would be uh, forbidden from going into the, the rice plants and, and grazing on them. So the child would have the job of looking after the water buffalo and, um, and be uh, sitting by the, uh, by the path or under a tree or something, keeping an eye on the, on the water buffalo and, and, um, uh, and you know, seeing where it was grazing. And then if it was getting close to the rice, then sort of jumping up and, and shouting at it and so forth. The Buddha uses exactly the same image um, in terms of how you look after the, the mind with uh, skillful mind states and unskillful mind states. He said that if the mind has, uh, is uh, filled with, with wholesome mind states, then it's rather like letting a water buffalo graze during the, the, the rainy season. There's plenty of, uh, of uh, foliage for the animal to, to, to graze on. So you can kind of let it wander wherever it likes because it's it's not going to go after the rice plants. It's got plenty to eat. So you can sit under the tree and doze if you like. So you can you can be uh, less cautious. If the uh, said the the um, looking after the, the the mind when it has negative mind states or destructive or unskillful mind states, it's like tending a buffalo. During the, the dry season, when the, the, the if, it, if it goes in, uh, uh, the only thing for it to eat is the rice plants, or it's going to be very very tempted to go there into the rice plants. So you have to be much more alert. And as soon as the buffalo starts to to wander off the track, then you have to to chase after it and to make sure it doesn't destroy the destroy the crops. So that uh, the um, you know, the 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 same uh, analogies have pertained from the Buddha's time right up until the least Lumpocha's era. So any further questions, thoughts, reflections? Yes. You said about, talked about happiness briefly. Mm -hmm. And of course, most people are looking for happiness. But the implication was that we have to tell people there is no such thing. Well, I wouldn't say that. Just uh, be careful not to chase after it. But um, as a let's see what it um, so if we are happy, we tend to get heedless. We attach to that happiness. We like it. It's heaven, and we're the deities. <clears throat> it's easeful, and we live in blissful ignorance. So reflect on happiness, but don't be deluded by it. So that's a. But uh, there's also uh, essentially there's there's two different kinds of happiness. There's the the happiness of getting what you like, which is very superficial, and uh, the world people spend a huge amount of time and effort and money trying to pursue that kind of happiness. And the other kind of happiness is the happiness of, of contentment with what, you've, with what you've got, or the contentment with the way things are. So the, an easy way of summarizing it is to say the worldly kind of happiness is happiness of getting what you like, and the 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 uh, sort of transcendent kind of happiness or the profound kind of happiness is learning to like what you get so getting what you like so that that kind of the happiness of contentment uh, is is a, a skillful kind of happiness but even that is something that not to be attached to or identified with otherwise as the Lumpur says we get complacent and that complacency is one of the most um, uh, I don't, even, I don't even know what the Pali word for complacency would be, but um, it's certainly in terms of spiritual training, it's one of the most uh, dangerous and tricky uh, mind states or attitudes of mind. Like, everything's fine, things really going well, I can just kind of throttle back here. It's just peaceful enough, comfortable enough, kind of like, you know. Yeah, good enough people, good enough mind, good enough body. Yeah, it's okay. So that's asleep at the wheel. So I'm sure there is a Pali word for it, but that uh, complacency is uh, is very dangerous. And so that's what Lumpur is not his sort of anti-happiness, but he's uh, aware that when things are comfortable and easeful, 
then we we drift into that complacent and uh, unconscious mind state. And you, you don't have to be asleep at the wheel very long before you see broken glass and blood all over the road. Okay, I think that's enough for today.